Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming from KPFK in Los Angeles, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge. I'm Nick Richard. This week, Los Angeles host Lindsay Sturman has two interviews from Europe. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm your co-host, Lindsay Sturman, and we're going to interview Jill Warren. She's the CEO of the European Cycling Federation. And with everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine and these global conversations about oil and the cost of oil and oil dependency, we thought it was a great time to talk to the person in charge of making cycling more possible all over Europe and hopefully the world. And their mission is achieving significant and lasting change that enables more and better cycling in Europe. And today we have our host, Nick Richard calling in from Massachusetts, which is very exciting. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. We're in this moment in time around both climate and the impact of the global oil supply and a lot of questions and more questions and a lot of concern. Jill, what is the role of your organization and the role of bikes and mobility in this conversation? Very good question. So we promote cycling as a sustainable and healthy means of transportation and leisure. So as a means of transportation, the bicycle absolutely is a solution for the crisis that we're facing at this point of time, with gas being ever more expensive for people who use conventionally fueled vehicles. Then there's quite a lot of solutions that we can implement to ease the problems that we're seeing here. So you've got this geopolitical situation with the very tragic war going on that is making the supply of Russian oil to those dependent on it very uncertain and very expensive. And instead of a knee-jerk reaction by national governments to give consumers a break at the gas pump or otherwise by lowering the taxes on fuel, I think that that money could be spent so much better and also to the benefit of cycling. And I would say that, wouldn't I? But I think you can do many things to enable safer, more comfortable cycling as a real and viable alternative to using your car and having to buy very expensive gas. In cities all over the world, and especially Europe, we're seeing this huge transition. What are the cities that you're watching and that are doing it well and sort of on the cusp? I mean, I could talk all day about this, but let me go back a couple of years to the pandemic because we really started tracking these temporary measures that were being put in place in connection with the pandemic because a lot of cities wanted to enable more cycling and walking so that they wouldn't go from, let's say, lockdown to traffic gridlock when pandemic restrictions would ease and people wanted to be able to maintain social distancing during their mobility. They were afraid everybody would kind of switch to their private vehicle and not use public transport, et cetera. So those cities that already had plans in place were able to accelerate those kinds of developments much faster than others. And so a few standout examples I would point to, Paris being one. So they were already in the midst of quite a lot of very ambitious plans to enable more cycling, and they were able to accelerate those further with more pop-up bike lanes and things like that. Then you had Brussels, which was also pretty early into their good move mobility plan, which gave priority to cyclists and pedestrians. They were able to put in 40 kilometers of pop-up lanes quite quickly. Um, Lisbon did some of the same. And in fact, we were very pleased to see a lot of non-traditional everyday cycling cities in Europe 
located in Southern Europe, like in Italy, Spain, Portugal, doing these kinds of moves. London is another good example. So during the pandemic, they not only created a lot more low traffic neighborhoods, pop-up bike lanes, et cetera, but they also gave 50 pound repair vouchers to citizens so that they could go get their bike out of the basement that maybe hadn't been used in a while and get it repaired. We also saw lots of lowering of the speed limits to a default 30 kilometer per hour in many European cities, Brussels being one, but the Netherlands implementing that on a much wider scale countrywide. So all sorts of developments that were meant to enable more active mobility that also are very, very applicable in this situation in terms of wanting to reduce the dependent on Russian oil. 30 kilometers per hour is 18 miles per hour for those in America, which is a very safe speed. If you get hit by a car going under 18 miles per hour, you have a pretty good chance of surviving. In fact, you have a 90% chance of surviving. Whereas if you get hit at, I want to say 60 kilometers per hour, that must be something like 35 miles an hour. You have a much, much higher chance of being seriously injured or killed. It's exponential because, you know, it's physics. So is anybody talking about the impact of cities on oil dependency and course emissions, but what happens when a city goes from how it is to becoming Copenhagen or in Amsterdam? What happens to their consumption? Is anyone looking at that? I don't have numbers on that. Where we do have numbers, it tends to be on emissions, so CO2 emissions, rather than consumption of oil. But clearly, the more biking, the higher modal split you have, the less emissions from transport that you will have. Right, right. And do we know offhand, take an Amsterdam and then take a city with, you know, all cars, what is the sort of per capita emissions? I unfortunately don't have figures that exact. I have much more global figures. What I can tell you is, so as an organization, we have set a goal as of 2030 to have 50% more trips made by bike compared to the latest year for which we have very good statistics, which is 2017. In Europe, if that goal were to be met, we know that that would save 3.5 million tons of CO2 emissions per year, Wow, which is absolutely enormous. And it does feel like you've got cities that are all or nothing, Paris, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, just going all in. Do you see a pattern like that? I think that we've reached a tipping point where cities want more of this livability. They are doing a lot more than they ever were. Of course, being an activist like myself, it's never enough. It's never fast enough. So we have to put that all into perspective. But I think a few statistics from a place like Paris are very illustrative. So the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, started with her plan in 2014. Before that, I think the modal split for cycling was very, very modest. And as someone who spent quite a bit of time there working in a previous life, the transformation is absolutely phenomenal. So during the re-election campaign of Anne Hidalgo in 2020, she announced that she was going to take away a further 60,000 parking spaces on Paris's streets to make the city more livable. She wow. got re-elected anyway. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. So people, they're embracing it. Yeah, well, I think you still have a backlash. I think it's still one of the most dangerous things you can do as a mayor to threaten to take people's parking spaces and things like that away. There tends to be quite a lot of noise. At the same time, when you pedestrianize an area, when you make it a very nice livable space or put in the outdoor dining and all of this stuff, 
you don't have people who say one, two years down the road, gee, let's go back to all the choking car traffic that used to be here. So you do get a lot of protest at the stage where you're talking about doing it and maybe while it's starting to be done, but I think once it's done, then the acceptance can be quite high. Well, what do you think is the best city right now in Europe for biking? I say low car mobility. That's a little bit hard to say because even within cities, so I'm in Vienna today, there are parts of the city I think are great and there are other parts that scare me to death (laughs) when I look at the number of cars and how fast they're going in certain parts. So it's a little bit hard to say that is the absolute best city. But I think some of the ones I named earlier, so Paris and Brussels, where you can really see the transformation happening right now. And what we're hearing coming out of Berlin, for example, that they're really ready for this change and they're making very bold announcements. It's very inspiring and very good to hear that more and more of this is happening. But there's a lot of places where it still isn't happening. So there's a lot of work to do. I always like to say, if you are looking for inspiration And I think this would apply to the U.S. as well as Europe. University towns are fantastic because university towns, by definition, have a lot of people living there who don't own cars, who get around by walking and by bike. And they're considered very livable places, very pleasant places. People love to raise their kids there. People love to live there. Why is that? Probably because they aren't choked up with traffic and unsafe for kids to play in or ride their bikes. It's so funny that you say that because, well, first of all, I have some kids in college and it's not the frat parties that's drawing the families, right? You think it'd be the opposite. But the other thing is that basically the highest mode share we have in any city is 8% except three college towns. I think it's UC Davis, Berkeley, and Boulder, if I'm correct. And I think what you have is like Pearl Street and Boulder, a beautiful promenade. It's low car. The kids don't have cars for the most part because they're in college. And they're also, you know, teenagers are a little riskier, right? Than your average 50, 60, 70 senior. So they like to bike. So you really have a perfect storm and they get to 15%. I think Davis is like 24% mode share of bikes. Davis is the best kept secret in America, in my opinion. Yeah, amazing. I'll have to go there someday. I've been to the other places. but. So let me ask you this, where do you have the most hope? Berlin having the citizens vote to get cars out of their cities. Where do you think are going to be the next exciting cities to watch? I think we should be looking at Ireland because when the Greens got into the government in Ireland two years ago, in their coalition agreement, they explicitly said they were going to prioritize active mobility and they put their money where their mouths are. So They devote 10% of the transport budget to cycling measures and a further 10% to walking measures. That adds up to a million euros a day for cycling and walking in this relatively small country. Wow. And we're already seeing that there's so much money available for these projects to develop cycle paths and pedestrian zones. And there's just more than enough of this stuff to go around there. So I think in three, four years, when a lot of these projects have been realized, it's going to be so amazing. And the transport minister, I have to say, he's a former bike retailer and bicycle <laughs> activist. So I mean, how cool is that? You know, <laughs> Perfect. He gets it. Let me ask you this, because I'm obviously very obsessed with the safety issue. I talk about it on the podcast a lot because I, I really believe I would bike everywhere, but I'm in the 80%. I'm not in the 1% who will risk my life in LA. I'm not in the 8% 
who will take in a semi-safe bike lane. I'm in the 80% who needs like Copenhagen. I just need it to be, I need to not get hit by a car because whatever, I'm scared. And so do cities just overnight take the cars off streets? And what's the impact if they just take one street and take the cars off? Do you see that? Can that work? I think it can. I can give you a couple of examples of that. So in LA, I think you have, I don't know, 12 lane streets and things from what I've seen. But in Brussels, one of the main thoroughfare streets through town is the street Rue de la Loi that has four very choked up lanes of traffic. And one of those lanes was blocked off by cement barriers and made into a two-way cycle lane during the pandemic. It's in the process of being made permanent now, but they took that one lane away from cars and they made it safe by putting concrete barriers between that lane and the cars. And that was literally done overnight. And it was done during the pandemic when there was no car traffic going on anyway, but the car traffic came back and deal with it. You know, that's a cycle lane now. And you can do these things overnight, in other words. And another example, I would say, this is kind of inspirational for me. I was at a conference this week in, in Austria and the deputy mayor of Ghent, another Belgian city of about 260, 270,000 people. He was explaining what they did in Ghent, how to Gentify your city was the name of his talk. And he said, we didn't have the money to do expensive Copenhagen type bridges and all of these things. He said, we just did a lot of planning. And then literally in one weekend, they pretty much made the center of the town car free. So they put in, in one weekend, the traffic diversions and everything that would get the cars out of the city so that they basically repurposed those streets in the city center. Wow. For cycling and walking. And he even said that cost us 5 million euros. And all of the politicians in the room had their jaws fall down because 5 million euros is nothing mm -hmm. for a city infrastructure project, if you like. And what happened and, to the cars? I mean, did it create horrible traffic or I assume it was much better? <laughs> that's a good question. I think they had measured beforehand that a lot of the traffic going through the city was not destination traffic to the city center, but through traffic. They were actually going somewhere else and they knew the way or that happened to be the easiest way or whatever. And they said, if we can get rid of all that through traffic, then that will already make everything much better here. So by changing the two-way street that becomes a one-way street, is it just diverting so that they cannot go right through there anymore? They have to change their driving pattern. And he is an urban planner, the deputy mayor by trainings. Wow. All these bike activists, urban planners getting in there. It's amazing. So Jill, now that I would imagine all of Europe is looking for alternative fuel or trying to reduce their dependence on oil, are you finding that the message that you're getting out there is being received any differently? I think there's a sense of urgency to it, which opens up more opportunities for our advocacy work. Definitely. I think that you know, never waste a good crisis. Like they say, this is a crisis as tragic as it is for people on the ground in Ukraine, the effects on regular citizens in terms of the energy prices and things in Europe, clearly they'd be more open to listening to solutions. Although, as I said, the knee jerk reaction of the politicians, I think right now is to kind of lower the taxes to make the gas seem less expensive. But can I just say, do you have any idea how expensive a gallon of gas is in Europe? I mean, I can guess, is it 10 euros? Yeah, it's priced by the liter and it's about 2 euros 50 
per liter. And so if you say four liters is roughly a gallon, yeah, it's 10 euros. The incentive was already there. The incentive was already there, but gas here is so much more expensive in the U.S. anyway, but this crisis has made it prohibitively expensive for the average person, I would say. So I do think they may be a bit more receptive to some of these things. And when we do suggest things like, gee, what can we do to reduce short-term the consumption of oil? We can have car-free Sundays. We can have reduced speed limits and things. I do think you get a little bit more reception to an argument like that, although it's never going to be the most popular thing you can say to people who like to drive their cars. Yeah. It sounds like we're in this moment of the crisis, but everything, Jill, you're working on really offers a piece of the solution. I hope so. (laughs) So Jill, last question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on EVs, electric vehicles. I think a lot of people think that that's the panacea. That is the best solution we have for reducing dependency on oil. But let me tell you, that isn't the answer. It's an important part of the solution, but you do not get all of these other benefits that you get from much more cycling just by switching your fleet to electric vehicles because you still have congestion. You don't reduce your overall emissions by as much as maybe you think you do when you take into account all of the emissions involved in producing these vehicles, which are very, very heavy. The batteries are absolutely huge. And when you think of all the raw material and everything that goes into producing an EV, then you're still so much better off by switching your modes to cycling. And so that has to be one part of a much bigger shift, this wider system transformation to much more active mobility. I could not agree more. And then you've got the tire dust. You have all this dust coming off this tire. It's causing all these diseases. Bikes, in many ways, they solve our healthcare costs problem. And we have a huge issue in America where we can't seem to cover all of our citizens for healthcare. Well, we live a very unhealthy lifestyle. It also affects housing. We can't build affordable housing in America because you have to build all this parking. So we can't build small, affordable units. I mean, bikes unlock so many wonderful things for us. And I love EVs and we should all drive them, but it's a piece of the answer. And no doubt it's an important piece of the answer. But there's so much more that we need to do so much more of. Well, thank you for coming on Bike Talk because that's obviously where our hearts are. Thank you very much. You're listening to Bike Talk. Now Lindsay Sturman talks with Chris Bruntlett. Chris is co-author of Curbing Traffic and Building the Cycling City. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and today we have Chris Bruntlett, the marketing manager of the Dutch Cycling Embassy, which is an amazing organization set up in the Netherlands to really export this incredible knowledge. 40 years of data and engineering and understanding to help the world become more bikeable. Chris, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you so much for coming. And my first question is, we've really struggled to scale up bikes in cities across America. What we learn from the Dutch is engineering and techniques and materials. But what about speed? What is the role that speed plays in creating bikeable cities and getting the vast majority of us onto bikes? Yeah, I think this is something that the Dutch cities figured out a long time ago is speed is everything. And they're at a point now where 80% of all urban streets in this country are 30 kilometers per hour or slower. That is 18 miles per hour or less. And it's only on designated arterial roads that you allow speeds of 50 kilometers an hour. And that's 30 miles per hour, but never higher than that. And it's reasons, of course, for safety, and but also livability and this built-in cycling network that takes place when you've suddenly got 80% of your road network that is traffic calm to that speed, uh, and you don't have the through traffic racing through is 
almost every street becomes a de facto bike route. You're not just limited to the ones that are uh, green on Google Maps or, or on your citywide network. And it's a really quick, easy, inexpensive way to create more cycle routes, these really fine-grained cycle routes that make it possible to cycle from anywhere to everywhere within your city. And this is what we're aiming for. We're not just aiming for the commute from the house to the office, but the more local and plentiful trips that we take throughout a given day, that is to the corner store, grocery store, school, bus stop, uh, friends' houses, restaurants, cafes, all the things that are in our day-to-day -day lives that we often default to take the car to just because it's the most comfortable and convenient way to move around, not just our city, but in our local neighborhood, which is uh, quite upsetting and unnecessary. How did you guys pick 30 kilometers per mile, i.e. 18 miles per hour? Yeah, that's the speed that the research shows is basically survivable when it comes to a car-human collision. I think it's 80 to 90% of collisions at that speed do result in injury, but they don't result in death. And once you get above 30 kilometers an hour, that survival rate drops significantly. At the end of the day, it is yeah about a transportation system that is uh, tremendously unsafe because we've prioritized the speed and comfort of drivers over the people that live, work, play, uh, and children that live, work, and play on those streets. And so if we do value the the lives and livelihoods of those those people we should be looking at reducing speeds now having said that it's difficult to do that in a city like los angeles where people are probably traveling longer and longer distances so we do need to uh, come up with some kind of balance there's a really interesting uh research that's been done that says uh, people are basically willing to travel 13 kilometers an hour in their car drive that uh, speed for about six to seven minutes. And then after that time, uh, they start losing patience and they want to go 50 kilometers an hour. And then they're willing to go 50 kilometers, 30 miles per hour for another seven or eight minutes. And then after that, they want to go uh, <laughs> on a motorway or a highway to, to really get where they're going. So if we can use that rule of thumb, we as humans uh, do have patience to travel at certain speeds within our local communities, but as we get further and further away from home, we demand faster speeds uh, very quickly. <laughs> but it almost gives you a roadmap that you've got to let, if people can, it's like, you know, as you said, like if we think about super blocks in Barcelona, you know, if you have a, a small protected area where people can have a lot of movement without cars and they just can get out of it to a faster arterial and then give them the speed within, you know, as you say, six to seven minutes, maybe they can tolerate going um, 18 miles per hour on a local street. Yeah, and it's a little bit counterintuitive because you start talking about slowing down and inconveniencing cars. People assume that you're going to make life a living hell for drivers, but the opposite has turned out to be the case here because you're streamlining the, the car travel, you're pushing the traffic onto the streets. You probably have less competition for road space because more people are walking and cycling in your neighborhood. While it's not a coincidence that Dutch cities have amongst the lowest levels of car traffic congestion because so many local trips are switched to more space-efficient modes of, of transportation, like walking and cycling and public transport. Is there data on if you build a certain size of a network, you know, or density of number of residents where people start a massive mode shift? I think it's different for every city, yeah. And so there's organizations like ITF, International Transport Forum, that are trying to model this in various cities. 
Uh, I just read a paper where they looked at Dublin, Ireland, which is one of their member cities within their, their network. And they looked at various scenarios, you know, what happens if we reallocate X road space? What does that create in terms of modal shift uh, and, and so on and so forth? And uh, I mean, no model is going to be perfect, but this gives us a sense of, yeah, what's, what's possible. Uh, again, the, I mean, the barriers are not engineering, as we often say, they're not budgetary. It all comes down to politics and what politicians are willing to tolerate in terms of controversy and pushback from certain small segments of the community that uh, will yell and scream anytime you talk about change. And it's not just change to our transport networks, it's change to housing, it's change to everything in our cities. It becomes very difficult when there is, you know, a small vocal minority that's pushing for the status quo, but it's definitely possible if you get the right politicians in place. I totally agree. And, and I think that especially in LA, we're sort of in a state of despair about the traffic. It's so stressful and it can be scary to be in anything but a car. Roger Geller from the Portland Department of Transportation breaks cyclists into four categories. He calls 1% strong and fearless, 8% enthused and confident, and then up to about 70% who are interested but concerned. And what's interesting is that if you look at cities like LA with some good but mostly terrible infrastructure, we have a 1% mode share. And then cities with good but not Dutch level infrastructure like Portland and New York City have an 8% mode share. And it's almost as if it correlates to the type of cyclists and what their tolerance for fear is. Because even in New York City, you will interact with a car in an unsafe way. Every single trip I went on, I got dumped in the middle of a street like Broadway. So at that point, it's not safe. We know it's not safe. It's not tolerable for someone like me. I get too scared. But when I was in Copenhagen, all I did was bike. And when I visited Amsterdam, all I did was bike. And I was completely comfortable and thrilled. And I think comfort is the, the operative word there. Either way you slice it, cycling you know, per kilometer per mile traveled, even in Los Angeles, is probably statistically quite safe. But at the end of the day, it's about comfort level. And do you want to to go to the corner store, get that shot of adrenaline and that, <laughs> that, uh, that feeling like you're riding a roller coaster when sometimes you just want to, uh, as we do here in the Netherlands, ride side by side with your, uh, your partner and have a, a comfortable conversation and, and maybe hold hands and de-stress from a work day. Our lives are stressful enough without, you know, adding on that in terms of our transportation systems. And it's only in the places where they've made cycling completely comfortable for children through to the elderly is where mass cycling takes place and everywhere else it will just unfortunately remain a niche activity. It does require these fine grain cycling networks that aren't just protected bike lanes, but also traffic calm streets and, uh, and provide you with the possibility of getting anywhere you need to go without that one hair raising moment. And this <laughs> is Another important point is that a, a network is only as good as its weakest link. And if you you could go a six or seven mile ride to wherever you're going, and if there's one hairy intersection where you're, you feel unsafe, then you'll choose a different mode of transportation or you won't make the journey at all. And uh, it's not until we've played that game of whack-a-mole and gotten all of those, those pinch points down. And, and this is what the Dutch do when they are looking at their network holistically is identifying the weak points and, and making sure that they are uh, strengthened, redesigned, rebuilt uh, to make sure that they work for eight-year-olds and they work for 80-year-olds. 
hair raising moments. I think that just sums it up. And 18 miles an hour, one earth, right? Cars as guests. That if you really want it to be safe, the cars have to be going under 18 miles per hour. Yeah, that's you know part of the reason uh, things work the way they do here, and and part of the reason why the Netherlands has the safest walking and cycling rates in the world in terms of per kilometer walked per kilometer cycled. Very unlikely to actually receive a life-threatening injury or or lose your life whilst walking and cycling here because the cities are just slower and uh, everything moves at a, a slower pace. Even if there is a collision, it's very likely that you will walk away unscathed. And now they're at a point where they're looking at blanket citywide, 30 kilometer an hour, 18 mile per hour speed limits. So taking those arterial roads even and, and reducing the speeds on those, because while it's good here, it's still not perfect. And the end goal should be zero fatalities on our road networks, as it is for our train networks and the maritime industry and the uh, the airline industry. We, we don't accept deaths on those modes of transport. We shouldn't be accepting them on our, our streets and roads. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation. Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition Executive Director and Bike Talk co-host Galen Mook is with the City of Holyoke's Bike Ped Committee to talk about a competition to make artistic bike racks. Galen has Committee Chair Shannon Bliven, Director of Planning and Economic Development for City of Holyoke Aaron Vega, and Senior Project Manager of the City of Holyoke Planning and Economic Development Office Ileana Marie Carrion. Thank you three for joining us here on Bike Talk. I am very interested and curious about hearing about riding around Holyoke. I love the city. It's um, for those who have never been and visited, it's kind of one of those post-industrial cities that's really built around canals and very dense, very bikeable, very walkable. Um, It's like when you think about an industrial city, I think of Holyoke in my mind. Um, But it's also a little bit, you know, as I say, post-industrial, it's a little bit after the curve of the economic boom that was coming, you know, 150 years ago. So my first question to all three of you, maybe we can go around. What is it like in Holyoke? What is it like riding around the city of Holyoke? I like that you say it's bikeable. There's a, there's a pretty big hill when you go from uptown to downtown or vice versa. So uh, you definitely get a workout. But I think one of the one of the beautiful things around about riding around Holyoke is you can see history right around you. As you mentioned, you can drive by, ride by old mills. You can ride right over the canal system that was built over 150 years ago, right? I mean, you can you can see it. And then you can also see new development. Um, you can go to a number of parks. Uh, you can see, you can go up through Route 5 and see dinosaur footprints. I mean, you can kind of get a whole thing to be right in the urban center and then kind of be out in a more rural area. That's awesome. So I'm really a nighttime rider in Holyoke. I love hopping on a valley bike at night because the streets are pretty clear and you can actually relax and look at all the architecture. It's really soothing to me. I go to the parks downtown and I stop and take a little break and just just soak it all in. I love Holyoke. I've lived here for 27 years and I couldn't imagine living anywhere else to bike and walk. I think it goes back to both what Shannon and Aaron are saying. When you, you're you in Holyoke, you see a lot of history, especially recent economic development. So you see history, you see, you know, these old mill buildings that are being now utilized. And I think it's great because it's versus just going on an open field and seeing nice trees and stuff. You see history, you get excited. And you also see culture because there's a lot of culture in Holyoke. So you see that when you're, when you're biking in Holyoke and also when you're driving, I'm, 
I'm a big driver. So I see that also in Holyoke. Um, and you see community, you see people walking together, you see people from all over the place, you see families, you see children. Um, so it's really interesting. You see so much versus just in an area where it's more trees and open field, you get to see stuff and explore different places that you didn't know existed. Yeah, that's great. And I appreciate that. I, I want to kind of piggyback off that answer and, and ask you kind of the the general makeup of who's riding around Holyoke. Who do you see on two wheels out there? And then my follow-up question to that is, you know, what can we do to get more of those people riding? I'm always taken aback sometimes, especially when I see the participants of Valley Bike. Um, you know, when, when Valley Bike first started, it was sort of this unknown. Holyoke wasn't even necessarily on the first uh, run of cities that was going to be part of it. But my predecessor, Marcus Morero, and the team here, you know, really pushed and worked with Pine Valley Planning Commission to make sure that Holyoke was. I remember the first time riding them on the on the bridge for, for an event. Um, but I see young people. I see older people. I see Latino kids. I see Anglo kids. It's like it's it really is everybody. Um, and it really has, I think, convinced a lot of people who are unsure that this really is an accessible means of transportation, accessible means for just entertainment for young people, um, but a real viable way for people to get around. Yeah, and I love it. A lot it. of people in Holyoke using Valley Bike to to do their errands or get back and forth to work. So we have a good combination of people who are commuting and people who are riding for enjoyment. But I also see uh, bikes as a very viable and used um, form of transportation for residents, especially in the downtown area. There's a lot of people who use bikes to get around and it's their only form of transportation. So I'm really excited to be on the Bike Peg Committee so that we can make it more accessible and safer for them. I would just add quickly that, you know, we see not just Valley Bike being used, but obviously people's yeah. own bikes, absolutely. And in fact, some of the new industries that have opened up downtown, you know, have talked about wanting bike racks or wanting Valley Bike stations because they see some of their employees coming on bike. And so they're like, well, maybe we should, there's a parking spot issue. Maybe we should just put some bike rack up. That's a perfect segue. Um, yeah. We're yeah. here to talk about artistic bike racks in the city of Holyoke. So. What's going on with the bike parking in Holyoke? I think I think it's a challenge. <laughs> I think it's a challenge to, to to definitely find places to to park your bike, and, and especially at our parks where people are going, uh, and especially young people. And so, um, you know, uh, someone in this office, Cynthia Espinosa, who was our uh, mass and motion coordinator, um, she uh, applied for a grant, and now Ileana has taken it over. Uh, and the proposal was to engage local artists to design uh, bike racks. And we've seen this in neighboring communities, East Hampton, I know for sure. Um, and we saw a lot of the prefab arty bikes and I was kind of leaning towards that a little bit, but uh, as, as it always happens and the right thing, you know, my staff, Ileana and the bike pet committee and others were like, let's, let's look at what the proposal was. And it really was to engage the community. Um, and so we're hoping that artists, fabricators, makers uh, will answer the RFP we're really asking for qualifications at this point because we want to work with them uh, to have three designs made uh, and then have the community uh, vote on a design. And it's our hope um, that, you know, we'll get these three out there, but then they can be a signature 
bike rack for Hoyoke. And so that if a company or the school or anybody else wants to have bike racks, maybe they'll just do the same thing. And that could be just be, we could duplicate it and have it be the sort of signature bike rack for Hoyoke, not just these three, but as other ones come online, private or municipally driven, that they'd be the same racks, the same bike racks. And I think also the bike racks, it's an interesting project because it's showing artistic expression, but also something that's functional. So it's the perfect, you know, in a way, happy medium because people are going to be using it, but then you also also have local artists that are being involved and showing their own side of, of art and you know you utilizing that in a way that people can use it like every day so I'm curious uh what do you expect the artistic racks to look do you have anything like in your mind's eye um are these like dinosaur footprint themed or canal factory themed what's um what or are we leaving it totally up to the vision of these artists who will be reaching out? Yeah, I think we're really leaving it up to the, the, I mean, you know, I went from thinking we should just get the the, the zip code lot, lot numbers, which I think I've seen in other cities to, yeah, let's see what artists create. I mean, look at the ones that were done in East Hampton and, and other areas. I'm like, oh, that's totally different. Um, and so um, I think we're very open, but again, want to make sure that they're functional. One of the sometimes challenges working with artists is to have it be, as Ileana mentioned, have it be a functional piece, right? It's, I mean, anyone can design this really cool looking thing, but if it can't be utilized, if it can't be installed, right, <laughs> you know, technically. So there is some technical things that we are to make sure it can be installed, make sure that bikes can be be uh, be hooked up properly to it. So there is some functionality. So really just looking forward to, to the proposals that will come, or the people that will come in with their proposals. And I agree with that. I, I will be looking for a design that will hold the most bikes. <laughs> yeah, I can. Something that they see and they know, oh, this is a bike rack, not a piece of artwork, something they know they can use. Yeah, that's tricky. It's a threading the needle. Um, yeah. I live in Alston, which is, you know, just outside of the, well, in the city of Boston, but it's kind of, a neighborhood in here it's very artistic very bikey so we have some artistic racks and we are living with some of the consequences of some of them being too artistic yeah um one of them which i thought was pretty cool to look at it looks like a like a vinyl record player and like like it's a big circle looks supposed to be a piece of vinyl and then like a, a, a arm for the needle for the record player uh but you can't park your bike anywhere on it <laughs> right yeah we don't we don't want that right yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there was a little bit of the self-deprecating one. One of them is like a, a, a giant rat with a baseball hat on. Oh. We're known as Alston Rat City. So it's like some neighbors were like, oh, give or take. I, yeah. I don't know if this is exactly the image we want for our community. But um, I think, totally I'm, obviously, I think we're hoping that the, the artists will consider, you know, the, the culture here. Obviously, there's a strong Latino Puerto Rican culture, uh, but obviously a long lasting Irish culture here as well as others. Um, and, you know, can look at the history. We mentioned driving around, riding around and seeing history. So, you know, you know, and of course, being the home of volleyball, there could be some nod to volleyball, St. Patrick's Day Parade. So I, I'm hoping that they come up with something that speaks to the community. Wait, Holyoke is the home of volleyball? Yes, absolutely. Volleyball, next time you ride out here, we'll have you to get you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. Next time, I'll be on in a couple of weeks. I'm definitely going to go right. to the Volleyball Hall of Fame. We'll get to that. Absolutely. Okay. Bump. Absolutely. Um, Every year we have the induction ceremony. People, from, literally, literally, people from all over the world come because, as you can imagine, many of the inductees are from other countries: uh, China, Russia, all Italy, all over the place. So, um, and, as well as America. So, yeah. Every year there's an induction ceremony, and people from all over the world come in. Fascinating. I had no idea. Cool. Next so we'll have, to bring, we'll have to bring them on a bike tour next time. That'll be the yeah. key. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my hit. You're getting people from all over the world. Showcase your city. Get yeah. out there. 
Good point. So I'm curious about the, the process for getting the racks. You said this was kind of something that was a mass in motion or maybe a Department of Public Health or funding. What, what's the funding mechanism? How much is it? And how can people plug in? The, the actual the funding mechanism for this particular project is actually coming through our local cultural council, which is funded by the Mass Cultural Council. Um, and so we're very happy uh, to have that funding at the state level come to the municipalities. Uh, and so right now we're just asking uh, within the RFP, we're adding some questions. It's almost more of a request for qualification. So we're just kind of looking what, what have artists done, uh, similar projects, have they worked in, created something that is both artistic and usable, right? So making sure you know, that they have some of that kind of experience. Um, and then again, we're just looking for those qualifications, looking for someone who's engaged in the community, uh, and then they will work with us to design three designs, and then we'll work with the community to actually vote on the designs, hopefully working with the bike pet committee, because um, they have great connections with the youth and other people. Uh, and so we get those votes in, uh, and we'll have the community choose a winner. And I do want to give, um, as Aaron mentioned previously, that Cynthia Spinoza, a person who was previously in my role, she applied for the grant, um, and the grant is, in, is a total $4,000. Not too shabby. Um, <laughs> Shannon, you said you want something that's lockable and uh, functional, but is there any other criteria that you think from a citizen standpoint that you want to throw out now? I do think it would be great if it reflected the cultures in Holyoke, all, all of the different cultures and things that we celebrate. The people who live here celebrate the Volleyball Hall of Fame, the Children's Museum, the Carousel, the, yeah everything so it's going to be hard to incorporate it all in in one bike rack but we'll see what we get do you have locations in mind of where you want to put these we've got a pre-approval for some parks with the, with the park and rec committee park and rec department um, cool. so they'll, they'll be park based um hopefully down the road again like i said if we can get this if it can be fabricated uh, and duplicated we'd love to get them around town all over the place yeah. totally yeah i see this as like a seating yes um, mm-hmm Exactly. Well, this is cool. So I want to talk a little bit about bikeability. Um, and, you know, I've lived in Boston for about 20 years and we've gone through a lot of different changes in the city itself from having no bike lanes up until, you know, only about 12 years ago to having, you know, a whole other conversation. But one of the first things that we did as a city was put bike racks around. And it seemed like such a simple piece of infrastructure. Um, it was low cost, low stress. We were kind of modifying parking meters and making them bike parking. It really signaled that the city was saying, okay, we care about you as a biker and we're going to provide for your destination and make sure that you have a place at your end of trip that is supported. I wonder if you could speak a little bit in terms of kind of how the city's viewing this as just kind of supporting the general culture of cycling. As we're looking at modes of transportation, we recognize that there are a lot of bikers. We want to make it safer. So we were early adopters of the Complete Streets program back in 2012. And so, you know, whenever road projects are done, uh, we want to make sure that they're safe and accessible for bikers and pedestrians. As we move more and more towards these local economies uh, where people maybe are biking to work or walking to work and going to a restaurant, it's all accessible. As you mentioned, we're an urban downtown. You should be able to walk to work, walk to a different restaurant. Um, and so if it's not walking, you're biking, we want to make sure that that's encouraged. And you're right. If I'm Riding my bike downtown, there's nowhere to lock it up. I'm not going to do it, right? So we want to make sure that that infrastructure, and this is low-hanging fruit infrastructure as compared to the, the work we're doing, say, with electric vehicle charging stations, which obviously costs a lot more uh, than a bike rack. Um, and I think that we've been talking a lot, and I know that that's probably what the Bike and Ped yeah. Pedestrian Committee works on. What's the best routes to go through the city? What are the safest routes to go through the city? And making that public and lining those routes up 
with you know with bike racks so people know that's the destination to go through. And the bike pay committee is currently we're informally working on a list of where we do have bike racks and where we do think they need to be and then we'll address funding. The whole idea of biking is you know promotes physical activity, it promotes health. Um, and as Aaron was saying, it's a huge mode of transportation for so many people in, in downtown Holyoke. So it's kind of saying we, we agree with you and we want to promote this. And um, Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, but can I disclose where? Yeah, yeah, like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'll make sure. Um, so when it was applied for, it was going to take place in McNally Field, Carlos Vega Park um, and Springdale Park, continuing that we can get hopefully three bike racks done. Awesome. What's the process for people to plug in? Say, you know, we're broadcasting out of Florence um, and also in Cambridge, Mass, and then also out in LA. But, you know, locally, if if there's some uh, local artists who want to plug in, what's the best way for them to find you? Definitely the RFP has a lot of information, but if they want to get in contact and get more information, they can email us or they can come to our office um, in person, the email is oped at holyoke.org. So a lot of people who have been inquiring about that usually send an email with their background and they can email us information. Or if they have physical copies of the designs that they want us to look at, they can also mail them in, whatever is easiest for them. And OPED is the Office of Planning and Economic Development? Yep. Yes. You got it. Got that. Yeah. Another, another acronym to add to your, uh, to your list. Um, well, this seems really cool. I'm really excited about this. And I think that, you know, the merging of biking and art and functionality, it's kind of a brilliant overlap of those Venn diagrams. Um, Absolutely. Thank you. Right, we're excited. Yeah. And thanks for thanks for taking interest in this. And yeah, hopefully this will get more people interested. And again, this could really be the tip of the iceberg. We'd like to see more of this, more of this happening. Yeah, well, we're definitely gonna follow up. I'm curious what the designs, um, even the ones that don't make the cut, I'm curious yeah. what artists would think. Like what would a piece of structural, functional art that represents the city be? Um yeah. cool. Any last thoughts before uh before we move on? Thanks yeah. so much for yeah. uh, reaching out, Galen. Well, it's, it's bike season, so let's start those bikes. Get them out. Right. Bike month is just around the corner, so um, <laughs> let's get out in May. We're probably on our way to becoming a bike-friendly city out there, and I look forward to riding there this season. Excellent. We'll see you then. Great. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> so I'm on with the founding director of Bicycle Benefits, Ian Klepitar. Bicycle Benefits is a concept I started in my hometown about 15 years ago to inspire people to make their trips to local businesses by bicycle. So the concept is that businesses agree to offer some kind of promotion or discount. And when a person rides their bike there, they show a little bike helmet sticker or bike benefits card and then they get hooked up for riding their bike there cool when did you start it probably about 15 years ago as part of a a local advocacy effort when i was trying anything under the sun to get people to ride their bikes in in town and then uh then i left the local organization you know where i was spoken on everything from infrastructure you know bike to school dot 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 and started taking this bicycle benefits concept uh, around the country to make it like to bring it to various cities so um, essentially different cities could use it as a local tool to to uh, get people riding bikes so right now we have about 2500 businesses that participate mark grocery stores markets hardware stores boutiques coffee shops uh, we you know we have a lot of grocery stores that participate and uh yeah. So if a person gets their sticker and, you know, from like a local shop in one city and they were bike traveling around the country, they could use it in any city that um, 
had you know had businesses that participated i think i saw one in northampton is that bicycle benefits yeah that's it and where else are you Ooh, uh, Burlington, Vermont, Seattle, Washington, Boston, Madison, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Portland, Maine. There's a map that lists all the places online. You know, so a lot of the cities are places that I was, you know, that I bike traveled to and set up camp for for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And a lot of the programs have been initiated by lo- you know, local bicycle advocates or local efforts. Cities have launched the program. Universities have lost, launched the program or you know, passionate cyclists that, um, you know, want to make their city better for biking. And it's a, it's a great program. That's like easy to implement in any city. The idea is that it'll incentivize people to ride more. Yeah, that's the goal. It's trifold. It's uh, reward the people that are already riding their bikes to get people that aren't riding their bikes to, you know, transition to a different way to arriving to their favorite businesses also to you know create a cult- culture that promotes healthy transportation instead of like you know driving culture where you know there's drive throughs and there's grocery stores that do like driving driving rewards where you get right. money and you you know you get discount on your gas and stuff so it kind of tries to you know flip the switch on that culture that we need to put behind us yeah i've heard of some things where they only have services for people in cars mhm yeah it's disgusting I'd say it's pretty discriminating. So you were a bike advocate before you started Bicycle Benefits? You were with an organization or on your own? Yeah, well, I guess it, you know, it started from, uh, you know, trying to figure out what I could do in my city to make things better. So I created an umbrella organization to do the work that I wanted to do. So it wasn't like, oh, Ian's doing this. So that was called Saratoga Healthy Transportation. And uh, yeah, now the organization is called Bikeatoga. It's taken the, uh, taking away, taking away like the biking or taking away the, you know, the walking and running component or, and it focuses on the biking now. But yeah, we have a, you know, DIY bike workshop. We do like, you know, bike to school stuff. Yeah. So it's a small town, Saratoga Springs, New York. So I guess in these small towns where people are trying to make change sometimes, the city's not ready for the energy or the ideas of bicycle advocates. So in my case, I decided to leave town and take my show on the road. You travel around checking in on these programs? Yeah, usually the, uh, the pandemic kind of slowed me down for a while because, you know, people were staying at home and it was hard to put on events and it was hard to do, you know, outreach, face-to-face outreach. And that was a big part of it. I would, you know, I'd bike to cities and I would, you know, pop into all the businesses and talk to all the cyclists or people that I met on the street and tell them about the program. So it was, I guess for me, I was finding it was best to just do face-to-face outreach and the pandemic kind of slowed me down. So that break allowed me to do different things, but usually I would, you know, I would bike to the different cities and set up the program and then, you know, travel back there, you know, a year later and see how the program was going. And then the businesses that participate would often check in with me too. They, you know, they'd get a new stock of stickers or they'd reach out if they needed new window decals or they needed to change their offer. And so a lot of the communication still does um, happen through email and phone calls, but the face-to-face outreach and promotion is, I feel what has been and is the most effective way to reach people. 
Uh, you have discounts if you have a bike, a bike helmet, a sticker for bicycle benefits, and you go to a certain store and they give you what five percent? Yeah, actually, uh, most places that participate, we we ask actually ask them to do you know ten percent off or more purchase price, but they could do like you know a free coffee or you know buy a beer, get one free or something like that. You know, for most places, five percent off is like it gets them on a list, but it's not going to change behavior. So we feel that like. Mm you know, 10% off or more exciting deals will, you know, get people to reconsider how they move to a place. If, you know, if they were getting like a half off their beer or a free pastry or something like that, you know, I try to work with the businesses and try to create something that will actually, you know, get people in their doors and, you know, if they have limited parking might get, you know, 5% of the people to reconsider how they're arriving to the businesses. That this is based on science? or just your observations? Yeah, through observations, you know, we've had some businesses that, you know, have done like biker counts beforehand and we've been able to monitor things. But uh, yeah, generally it's just observation and, you know, trying something and seeing what works. And, and also, you know, half of it's the businesses, we want the businesses to participate to also promote the program. So that's a big part, you know, bicycle advocacy groups and pro bike stores will always promote biking, but, you know, trying to get like a bar or a restaurant or a cafe to promote, you know, biking is, is pretty revolutionary, you know, um, especially yeah. places that, you know, wouldn't do it ordinarily. So to get them to include, yeah, something new into how they promote themselves. You know, there's a lot of places where community is, struggling with whether to put a protected bike lane or street calming into a place and take away parking spots. And a lot of times it's the business owners who object, who fight. Uh -huh. um, they say they can't, they can't lose a parking space to have a, a protected lane. Have you weighed in or said, Hey, you know, we'll help you actually turn this to your advantage. Yeah. We are myself. I try to get involved as much as possible. And I think one of the neat things about the bicycle benefits is that for a lot of businesses, they don't realize how, you know, how many people are, you know, biking and walking traffic as far as their customers. So I think with the bike benefits, you know, they're able to realize that, it's, you know, it's benefiting them. Plus, they're able to say, wow, you know, so many people are using this program. We didn't realize that, like, so many people bike to our store. That helps, um, yeah, helps them realize that, you know, bikes do mean business for them. And I think there's this general assumption that, you know, for business owners, that they just think that everyone that shows up in their store is driven there because they don't, you know, see the mode of transportation they've taken. Right. Um, so I guess in a big way, it can kind of change their, their perception of their customers. We've definitely weighed in. You working on Los Angeles? Maybe New no, York City? No, I haven't. Uh, I, last year, I was in touch with some uh, a group in LA that they were they were looking to bring bicycle benefits there, and uh, just based on my own uh, work in larger cities and the program, I think trying to create some kind of program or concept that instead of just focusing on bicycles, it just focused on non-drivers, and I think <laughs> that might be able to get more create more momentum in a city. So I was working with this group to create like a, you know, a car free card in LA that was something that could be used for people that are, uh, you know, biking to a business or walking to a business, just not driving. The prototype was a card that, you know, a person would sign their name indicating they didn't, they didn't drive there. 
you know, in large cities, it's hard to reach so many people. I think that's kind of one of our hurdles. You know, you have a, a city like Boston, for example. I don't know if it's the same way in LA, but there's so many colleges, there's so many people coming in and out. So, you know, I might be able to reach a, you know, a ton of people one year, but the next year it might be totally different people living in the city, you know, for the concept to catch on, you really need to create a lot of awareness in a city that the program exists. And without like a large marketing budget, it can be challenging. So I guess that's another reason is if you can focus on just non-drivers and it's more, you know, you'll get a lot more people utilizing the program. I sometimes think of these, some of these cities, I know LA is like a, a clusters of neighborhoods. You know, there's some neighborhoods in LA that are walkable. Mm -hmm. If you were to think about it as a group of communities. Yeah. That would, that would be great. You know, a lot of our programs, or maybe most of them, are now brought to different cities by individuals. So if there's someone listening to the podcast that would like to bring bicycle benefits to LA, I think it would be wonderful. And we would, you know, work with them to get them set up so they can add businesses and create a successful campaign in LA. Because literally the program can exist anywhere and it can be very successful anywhere. But personally, I can't be anywhere. So we need feet on the ground that are willing to do the work. Or wheels. Or wheels. Well Thank you so much, Ian, for coming on. And it's a great idea. And I'd like to hear how it's going. So hopefully we can check back. Great. Thanks, Nick. Have a great day. And uh, thanks, everybody. Bye. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedal. And run, 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 run around. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedal. And run, 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 run around. Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.